Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, that even if you think you know a lot of words that you really don't? A lot of people I talk to are surprised to learn that more than half of the unique words of English are not included in traditional dictionaries. They fall into a couple of different categories. For example, there's borrowings from other languages, especially for food. There's slang terms, words with new prefixes and suffixes like biscuit-esque or trashification technical and jargon words from specific fields. And also there's a big category of oddly gendered words like tycoonus instead of tycoon or hegan to specifically mean a male vegan. And then probably my favorite category of words are kind of like metaphorical words or sometimes they're called sniglets like Santa claustrophobia, which is the fear of being stuck in chimneys. There are just way, way, way more words of English than people expect. We're talking millions. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and that was the lexicographer Aaron McKean, whose online dictionary Wordnik contains 8 million words in English alone. Thanks to Aaron for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's episode, Words. Something I Don't Know is a podcast. It's also a game show. It's also live journalism where contestants try to tell us their most interesting IDKs or I Don't Knows. To judge these IDKs, our panel tonight is a group of exceedingly bright and eloquent people. Would you please welcome the chief content officer of Hearst Magazine's Joanna Coles, the author and filmmaker Adriana Trigiani, and the comedian Maeve Higgins. So glad you are all here. Joanna Coles, here's what we do know about you so far. We know that you were promoted into your current job at Hearst after editing Cosmopolitan for several years. We know that you published your first ever article as a journalist when you were 10 years old in the Yorkshire Post. And we know that you're on the board of directors at Snapchat, so we know also who's buying drinks later. Uh, Joanna Coles, why don't you tell us something we don't know about you? Uh, well, something you don't know about me is I was recently at a party and I saw a tall, good-looking young man that I recognized as the son of a friend. And I owed this young man an email. He'd written to ask me for some career advice. And it was one of those things I'd meant to get around to doing. So I was overcompensating uh, and feeling slightly guilty when I approached him. And I said, how is it going with the finals? And he leant back a little, extended a hand and went, Justin, Justin Trudeau. So um, I guess we should infer that you are not nominated for any UN ambassador posts in the new administration. Not my world. All righty. Adriana Trajani, greetings. Let's see what we have on you. You have been called one of the reigning queens of women's fiction. Eight of your novels are New York Times bestsellers. You directed the film Big Stone Gap, which is based on your novel and named for the Virginia town where you grew up. Early on, you wrote for The Cosby Show, uh, so that must have been interesting. Adriana Trigiani, tell us something we don't know about you. Well, I was on another game show at one point uh, in third grade, (laughs) WCYB-TV in Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee. And um, we were supposed to win. We didn't. Um, so well, I think it's going to be better tonight, though I'm going to redeem myself <laughs> right here on this podcast. So it's all good. Well, we are very, very happy to have you. Uh, our final panelist, Maeve Higgins. So Maeve, 
What we know is that you were born in Cork, Ireland, and you've done stand-up all over the world. We know you live here now, and um, we're glad to have you. And I've been told you like New York audiences because you've said Americans applaud effort. Is, it, is that true? Oh, I feel like American audiences are so like glad for you and happy that you're trying. Um, whereas back home in Ireland, they're like, how dare you? <laughs> It might also be because like, people don't know what I'm saying, so they're just clapping and hoping I'll stop. <laughs> we know that you host a wonderful podcast called Mave in America, which is about immigration. Mm-hmm. Your favorite food is peanut butter, true? Yes. Is there anything else we need to know about you before no, we No, give me on? an immigrant, give me a tub of peanut butter, and I am yours. So, uh, time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Panelists, here's how it's going to work tonight. The contestants will come on stage to deliver their IDKs, and you can chat with them all you like, ask any questions you like. Once we've heard all the contestants, you'll pick a winner. The IDKs are to be judged on three criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, let's bring out our real-time human fact-checker, Beret Lamb. Foray writes business and economic stories at TheAtlantic.com. Before that, it says here, you were the editor of something called Freakonomics.com. I knew you looked familiar. <laughs> Beret, uh, how are things? Things are great. I am in a new life phase. I recently got married a month ago. Oh, and? congratulations. Yeah. And I, I think this is really going to help me check facts tonight because now I have to get all the facts straight at home and at work. All right, well, it's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight's theme, you'll recall, is words, how we use them, abuse them, how they don't always mean what we think they mean. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Bernard O'Brien. Hello, Bernard. Uh, Where are you from? What do you do? Well, I'm originally from Indiana, and I now reside in Brooklyn, and I'm basically a government bureaucrat. Uh, in an interesting-ish way? I work in the uh, city government, uh, basically dealing with the city budget. All right, Bernard. Uh, Why are the pipes all torn up? Why? Why are the pipes always... Why? Why with the pipes? Bernard, answer that, please. This is something I don't know. Okay, Bernard. <laughs> oh, Bernard, I can see you regretting every moment that you... Uh, Well, we are eager to learn something from you. So are our panelists. Again, Joanna Coles, Adriana Trigiani, and Maeve Higgins. So what do you know, Bernard, that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Well, the alcohol industry spends about $3 billion annually on advertising in the United States, and their ads nearly always include language asking us to drink responsibly. So why is that language included in alcohol ads? Well, it doesn't appear on English alcohol. In fact, you're encouraged there to, I think, drink irresponsibly. (laughs) So I'm assuming it's some sort of legal thing, only because America is super legal like that. And they're not allowed to say, like, stop drinking. It's like, you're an adult, it's up to you how much you wreck yourself. It's like a very American idea. (laughs) You know, it's like, you're independent enough to know. So does it have anything to do with the spirit of American independence uh, that Maeve has identified, or is it a legal... One would assume, right, that it's a legal obligation? It's not at all a legal obligation. Uh, Well, could it be that that by encouraging people to drink responsibly, it keeps them drinking over many years? Or it could be reverse psychology. So they say drink responsibly, knowing that the minute you're told that, you immediately think, aha, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you're Mm. not my father. Exactly right. (laughs) Bernard, uh, a lot of, uh, I would have to say, excellent guesses. Are any of them truth or close to it? It seems curious that the industry would include in their ads a message which appears to nudge people to purchase less alcohol than they otherwise might. Uh, Well, if you own stock in the alcohol companies, there's actually little need to worry. That's because these messages are generally viewed by public health experts as quite ineffective. Well, a recent research paper from John Hopkins University indicated that the ambiguity of the phrase is the key to its ineffectiveness. I mean, after all, what precisely does it mean to drink responsibly? In fact, 
the messages often are crafted in such a way as to enhance the appeal of the product. For example, one popular ad declares that with great beer comes great responsibility. Now, not surprisingly, the great beer that they're referring to is the brand that they're encouraging you to buy. Actually, and sadly, there's evidence that irresponsible drinking uh, contributes mightily to alcohol industry profits. Uh, a Washington Post article indicated that if you take all the Americans who drink and you identify the 10% who drink the most, that 10% consumes over half of all the alcohol that's consumed in any given year. So, But is it like... You, they don't really have strong guidelines because it's like when you're pregnant, you're only allowed to have like a bottle of wine a day. Or like when you're <laughs> an old lady, you shouldn't do shots. Perhaps some specificity could be added to the drink responsibly message to make it more effective. I mean, here's a possibility. This is a factual message which would pack a little more punch. Excessive alcohol use can interfere with male hormone production and resulting in impotence and infertility. Oh, well, well, women have known that for years, which is why they encourage their men to go to the bars and pubs. Beret Lamb, before we finish up with Bernard, um, is drink responsibly just kind of an inside-out marketing gimmick? Yeah, so I found the study, the Johns Hopkins study, and 88% of the, these responsibility messages directly contradicts what's being depicted in the ad. But we know one kind of warning labels that really work. So they call them graphic warning labels. And this really works for smoking. Uh, in Canada, there's a study saying that they showed smokers like the grossest pictures they could find. 60% of heavy smokers, when they showed these really graphic images to them, immediately said they wanted to stop smoking. But of and what? The, the disease lung? or the Yeah, yeah. So there's like a mouth cancer one that I don't think anybody should look up. Bernard O'Brien, thank you so much for playing thank Tell you, Me Bernard. Something I Don't Know. Great job. <laughs> Panelists, later you'll be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. For now, let's welcome our next contestant, Igor Tumasov. Hello, Igor. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Hi. I'm originally from Ukraine, now a New Yorker, and I work on uh, applying artificial intelligence in business at IBM Watson. Oh, God, you're here to replace me, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Can uh, I? I'm so sorry. I don't know it. what Watson, who Watson is. Okay. So in the early 2000s, IBM built a computer to beat Gary Kasparov in chess. Yes. And our next grand challenge was to do a similar task, but with language. And we built something that beat champions in Jeopardy, <laughs> meaning it answered questions without knowing what was going to be asked in open domain, which is really hard to do for a machine. Thank okay. you. Mm-hmm. All right, Igor, what can you tell us? Um, so I'm actually part of the team that's teaching Watson to uh, understand human language. And it turns out that our language in conversation or writing is incredibly nuanced, ambiguous, and messy. But it's also very emotional. Uh, we load our speech with metaphors, sarcasm, and stories from our life to try can to... Can Watson tell if people are angry? Can it, when you say it can't pick up nuance, can it? Exactly. Or sarcasm, if you're like, great job, Watson. <laughs> then it will be like, thank you, yes, I did a great job. <laughs> like that? That's exactly the ambition, because a lot of human communication isn't that... And part of being able to answer a question and communicate naturally is being able to process that and answer or compute it adequately for any given task. So um, what we built was actually called personality insights and tone analysis. And those are tools that we use to analyze text written by a person to create a psychographic profile. So it maps the major five personality traits of a person and identifies major needs and values. Mine are crazy, sexy, cool. So we try to apply that commercially. And uh, what we do, for example, is we can take a conversation transcript or Twitter feed and figure out if a person um, resorts to logical arguments or impassioned emotional appeals in trying to communicate. And we, in turn, can use that to uh, motivate that person, right? Like like Donald Trump at two in the morning on Twitter. (laughs) Believe it or not, a lot of very interesting insights in uh, analyzing through those tools speeches by different politicians. And it's actually open online. You can all try it. So one of our studies shows, as an example, targeting the top 10% of users with 
high openness and low emotional range significantly improves click rates and follow rate on Twitter. I'm on a hayride to the pumpkin patch here with you. <laughs> Igor, let me tell you something. Three women up here will tell you right now, you should st- what, what we need to do with Watson is start with the seven personality disorders. <laughs> and that's what we need to track. First, I think this is fascinating, and I can tell you're brilliant. Just tell me where it's taking us. All I'm right. trying to understand. So the applications of this can actually range from something super mundane like targeted advertising. Oh, I see. Okay, we're going to sell stuff. Or okay. something super controversial like guiding employers' hiring practices and how do you fit in a team or school. So can I find out like, how much my mother actually loves me? <laughs> if I ask Watson? I don't think so. If I like, so. play her voice being like, I love you, then he'll be like, 15% more than your sister. <laughs> Give us a for instance that Watson can be put to use to lift all boats and help all people. Thank you, Stephen. So to your point, yes, it's a tool. It's how you apply it. One of the ways we're doing it is matching investment advisors to clients based on their personality by understanding what kind of common ground they can find and how would they communicate about issues. So for instance, if in writing both the advisor and the client have shown themselves to rely on instinct, they might have more common ground in discussing investment based on sentiment and experience rather than fundamental analysis, that might help them build a relationship and common ground quicker. And you can apply that in investing, in education, and many other fields. Uh, We've actually seen hospitals trying to apply that to nurses and patients for better care because the emotional appeal between a caregiver and a patient is so important for the outcome. So Beret Igor is telling us that Watson is getting better or good at understanding the emotion in written human language. What can you tell us about that? So I found the demo that Igor was talking about, and I thought the best thing to do is to put in a piece by you, Stephen, and see what Watson comes up with. You've used Watson's demo to analyze something I've written, and now you're going to tell me about me. Watson's going to tell you about you. So I put in a piece by Stephen Call, uh, The Herd Mentality of Riding a Bus. So the first thing Watson says is that it gives you, Stephen, a score of 64% for openness and 61% for emotional range. You know, as low as that is, I think it's pretty generous, knowing myself. Watson also has a personality summary. So, Stephen, you're a bit inconsiderate and somewhat indirect. Guilty as charged, but how does it match up with it? The, so then you, two people do something like this yeah, and then, then you match then them up? Then Igor takes it and he... Like, so it'll be abstracted from facts and it'll be a score on a range. So your openness is not necessarily, you know, a score out of 100 as an A+. It's on a range between two types of personality. So you might match on one end or with the other. Oh, oh okay. Well, that's helpful, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Beret, can you give us Watson's take on a piece of Adriana's oh, writing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Adriana, you got 99% for openness. Oh, wow. Now, now she likes it. Watson doesn't say if it's good or bad, but here's your personality summary. Uh-huh. Um, you're excitable, explosive, and opinionated. Oh, wow, that's oh, So true. far, I think Watson's doing rather a good job. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're open and intrigued by new ideas and love to explore them. You're independent, and you have a strong desire to have time to yourself. So, Adriana, I think your view of Watson may have changed a little bit over the last few minutes. I, I think I'm in love. And um, <laughs> he finally, he sees me. But he's in a cloud, which is typical of most men. <laughs> Igor Chamasov, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Lauren Spradlin. Come on up, Lauren. Hi there, Lauren. What's your story? Hi, I'm a PhD candidate in linguistics. I specifically study historical morphophonology and slang, and I also teach at Hunter College. The floor, Lauren, is yours. All right, panelists, I've got a little word quiz for you. What word is celebration an abbreviation for? Celebration. Yes. How about the bedge in a two-bedge apartment? Bedroom? Mm-hmm. So, I'm about to tell you something you don't know that you know. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, people produce and understand this type of abbreviation without any instructions or linguistic training, but the process is actually surprisingly complex to describe. So, these abbreves, or more fancily truncations, originally occurred with the word totes, 
So that's why I ended up calling them totes truncations. Uh, totesers, those who totes, mostly agree about how to make these abbreviated <laughs> forms uh, because they're subconsciously using their linguistic knowledge to make abbreviations that they've never heard, but that could be well-formed English words. This is original research of yours, then? This is I what am you do? the foremost scholar on Toad's truncations. No way. <laughs> Bask in my presence. Yeah. I was the first person to actually do academic writing about these uh, starting a couple years ago. Wow. Okay, so tell us more. Okay. So, my question for you, since I already told you it is surprisingly complex to describe, how do you do this? You just shorten the words that you're saying. <laughs> right. Ah. Just... Don't More talk? complex. Well, wouldn't it then be bed for bedroom? I've never heard beds. But you knew what it meant. Well, <laughs> Joanna did. I'm still yeah. stumbling over what the hell your PhD was called. And also, why isn't trunk eight trunk? Why, aren't you, why isn't it totes trunk? Uh, I, don't don't spirit. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> and that's how you do it wrong. Oh. <laughs> I can ass. teach you how. So, the first step is to find the most prominent, or in linguistics, the stressed syllable of the word. So, for example, celebration, it's celebration, not celebration, or celebration, or celebration. For example, it's republican, not republican. What about controversy or controversy? It actually, there are variations with American English and British English, and actually it happens in Dutch sometimes. Wherever the stressed syllable is for you, that's where you would start this process. So if it were controversy, it would be, that's a contrav. So it would be on forch. On forch, <laughs> precisely. Mm. It cool. is especially uh, well represented on Twitter, which is where a lot of my research was done, was gathering tweets and looking for these spellings oh. of these things. But also, so for example, I like how mom. you say gathering treats like it's kind of in a farm. <laughs> like, I'm, I've got my basket, but I must it's kind gather of how some treats. Yeah, the next step, so speakers take as many sounds, not letters, crucially, as they can into that syllable before they delete the rest of it. Um, so English allows syllables like ish, so celebration is just fine. But we don't have repubble because it doesn't work as a syllable. There are no English words that end in bull that way. What about I feel horrible? It might be different in Ireland. I like my, my pronunciation is terrible. I haven't seen it, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's not impossible. Precisely. <laughs> so then the next permutation of this seems that speakers actually value the sh sound on the end of things like celebration, bedge, more than the word totes. When it first started, the totes was really important, but the sh is now so salient that final S sounds are becoming sh, like os becomes osh, impress for impress, even toch. Impress. And the shs are appearing out of nowhere, like in mabsh and comftsh. What was the final word you said? Comftsh, from comfy or comfortable. That's harder to say than comfortable, though. Yes. When the abbreviation is harder to say or longer, what's the purpose? Because it's fun. People play with language. It's what we do. And so abbreviations are not for time or for keystrokes. It's been a long time since text messages have been limited to number of characters and Twitter's throwing that by the wayside. But it's for affect or to make things playful and cute. And is it also to identify your tribe? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So one of the questions that I've had a really hard time with from reporters and people covering my work as an academic is why are people doing this? And the answer is for the same reason that we all have our inside jokes. Do you know Bay? Mm -hmm. Bay. I feel like um, white people stole that. Oh, from... we steal everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, really. That's the, so generally language change is attributed to girls who are between like 15 and 20 to 25. But also at the forefront of language change is actually African-American English just in general. And then we take it and we ruin it. And that's just how it goes. It's so funny, though, because like teenage girls get mocked all the time and often African-American vernacular gets mocked. But then that's like leading the way. And then we just take it. Right. But <sighs> there's so much that that's interesting that seems current that's even old from the 1920s, for example, that, that sounds hip. That's that's adopted now by young people. Do you study those words that that, you know, like, well, I heard a kid say lettuce for money. 
It made me laugh. <laughs> that's okay. And it was used to any lettuce. There's nothing new under the sun. Is but what you're that's saying. why the internet is so exciting for linguists because yeah. there are languages that we have reconstructed from three coins and somebody's gravestone, and now the internet has all of the language. Well, that's fast. Forever for that's us to go back and look at. Beret Lamb, Lauren Spradlin, and her research on how abreves are made. Uh, it's her own research. Uh, does it check out? Totes true. <laughs> I found this super interesting. It follows most of the rules of English as a language, and that's why, like you were saying, people can do it without really trying. Um, and people often think that totesing uh, breaks the rules because it's just too creative. That's really just opinion. And what's interesting is when people are making these words that don't exist in English, they're making things that could be English. Lauren Spradlin, we totes appreciate the presentation. It is time now for a short break. When we return, more contestants, and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you would like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight are Joanna Coles, Adriana Trigiani, and Maeve Higgins. Beret Lamb is our fact checker. And our theme, you will recall, is words. We'll get back to the game in a minute. But first, earlier, we did a quick survey of our live studio audience, and we asked them to tell us their least favorite word and why. Panelists, I wonder if you would each be so kind as to read... Allowed one of them, Joanna. The word I've been given to read out is from Ryan, and his least favorite word is the word fart. <laughs> Which, just saying the word fart gets laughter, doesn't it? But actually, it reminds me of a man I used to work with who, <laughs> who, <laughs> who was a fart, but actually he used to make a great thing of farting and then enjoying the smell of his own fart. Oh. And he was Irish, and he used to go, ah, tis the breath of God, tis the breath of God. <laughs> I never knew what to make of that. Anyway, Ryan, I sympathize. Fart. I have to say the way you say fart, though, it's, it's quite it's lovely. So pretty. So, uh, isn't it pretty? You yeah. made it sound so pretty. Anyway, my word <laughs> is um, from Ashley, and she says the word slurp because I hate hearing people eat or drink. Ashley, this puts you out of the food service industry, and it also prevents you from having a family or a relationship. (laughs) You're going to be a very lonely young woman. Maeve? (laughs) Uh, This this word is Peter M's least favorite word, and it's marsupial, because he says it's too complicated a word for such a cute animal. Oh, that's an interesting observation. Since his complaint is he likes the animals, but the word is too complicated, maybe Mm. you could simplify the word for him. Oh, (laughs) marsupials. I think that did the trick. Beret Lamb, uh, I'm curious if you've got a favorite word, and I'm wondering if it's your name, which in fact wasn't a name. That's right. So um, my name is a Baroque dance, and it was adopted by Louis XIV into the French court. So uh, those of you who do or know ballet might know the pas de beret step. But actually, I had a problem with my name when I went to live in France for a semester, when I went to study there. Because uh, the word means something quite different now. Um, actually, in French slang, the word now means drunk or, or more accurately, completely plastered. So when I would introduce myself, when I would say, hi, like, nice to meet you. I'm Beret, je suis Beret. People would be like, are you okay? Like, how <laughs> drunk are you right now? Well, I think it's a, a lovely name. And Beret, we're very happy to have you here on fact-checking duty tonight. Would you please welcome... The next contestant, Mr. Michael Nolan. Hello, Michael. Who are you? Where are you from? I'm uh, from just outside the D.C. area, and I'm the very lucky dad of two boys with my amazing wife, and I'm the founder of education technology company, Peer Power. Okay. Very eager to hear what you have for us on this night when our theme is words. Educators have tried all sorts of ways to reduce absences, 
They've tried financial incentives. They've tried punishing students. They've tried even having pizza parties for the class with perfect attendance. But it turns out there's a really effective, low-cost way of getting kids to go to school. What form of communication do you think is really effective at getting kids to go to class? Parental violence. You're actually not far off. Oh, no. We are talking about words. So aggressive threats? You're focusing on the wrong word in Adriana's answer. Parental drinking? <laughs> Closer. Do the parents get in trouble? Is that right? Or if the yeah. teachers tell the parents? Or you find the parents. All right, Michael, tell us what kind of communication actually does seem to reduce absenteeism for kids? Woody Allen famously said 80% of success is showing up. Studies have shown that absences predict academic performance, high school graduation, drug and alcohol use, and even crime. It turns out schools have a tool available to them that they are underutilizing when it comes to increasing attendance, which is parents. So recent randomized controlled trials show that when parents or guardians receive specific customized messages about their students, those students have higher attendance, earn better grades, and then students whose parents don't receive those messages. Two of these studies use behavioral nudges. So it's not ba- necessarily bad things, it's just communication? It's communication, exactly correct, but it's very specific and it's customized to their student. One of the studies actually informed parents of their students' number of absences compared to typical students, and that actually got oh. attendance to go up and also increase grades. Another study sent messages about specific homework assignments that students had missed uh, and not handed in. And so parents responded to these direct, specific messages by making sure their kids went to school. You mentioned in your introduction that you had two boys. Have you had these messages from schools about your children? Uh, No, because they haven't contracted with my company. (laughs) Beret Lamb, Michael Nolan's IDK about absenteeism. We'll call it absent makes the smart go yonder. Um, What can you tell us? So this is true, but I quibble with the size of the effect. Um, The study I found, which is a UC Berkeley study, uh, found that these personalized messages for parents reduced the chronic absenteeism of students by 10%. Which is not nothing. That is actually a really big deal. So chronic absenteeism is defined as, depending on who you talk to, 10% of the school year. So 18 days. In states that represent 40% of public school students, school districts actually get funded based on attendance. So for every day that attendance goes up, that's $40 per student per day into the school district's budget. Yeah. Actually, I think speaking of money, I think the, the really neat thing about this nudge is that it's so cheap. So compared with the other solutions you were talking about, like financial incentive, punishment, it's a really cheap way to get kids to go to school. And the research is so compelling that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Viacom, they work together with this nonprofit called Get Schooled. They get celebrities to record messages, and then they robocall students with these wake-up calls from um, Nicki Minaj, Wiz Khalifa. And um, Mm. my favorite has to be Tyra Banks. And we have a clip of it. We're going to play. Hey, what's up? It's Tyra Banks. Get your butt up. Get up right now. Uh Uh-huh. I know you're sleepy. Wipe that sleep out of your eyes and get into that mirror. Brush those teeth and smile, honey. Because if you get your butt to school, you're in the running to become America's next top amazing student. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Nolan, how do you think that would work? It hasn't been used in a randomized controlled trial, but (laughs) I'm all for it. Michael, great job. Thank you very much. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Svenja Goodell. Come on up, Svenja. Hi, Svenja. Uh, Where are you from and what do you do? I'm the chief economist at Zillow, which is the country's largest uh, real estate information website. And we're based out of Seattle, Washington. Okay, so tonight's theme, as we know, is words. Zillow, we know has a ton of real estate data that includes the words people use to sell and buy their homes. So what can you tell us? Well, um, there are many words that describe real estate that's near the water. Waterfront, property, beach house, ocean view. But homes that are described this way are also well-known by potential buyers to be in flood zones. 
You might uh, think stories of lost property and even lost lives, like what happened during Hurricane Sandy and Katrina, would be enough to send prospective homebuyers scrambling inland. But no, the words waterfront property are just too enticing, increasing home values across the nation. Hurricanes and tropical storms can devastate waterfront neighborhoods, so why is it actually that they increase the value of a waterfront home? Despite the grave risks of living on the beach, coastal housing markets are virtually guaranteed to succeed. People simply want to live near the water. Well, it's a lot like a handsome man. <laughs> you know they're trouble. You know they it's not really going to end. Well, you know it's not going to end. Well, you know they're going to drown the you dice. one day. <laughs> you roll the dice. You get the view. Svenja, are you yes. going to be able to tell us about the why or just the what? Do we know I, the I why? I will be able to tell you about the why, yes. You will be able to tell yep. us about the why. We looked at coastal regions in the Carolinas and Florida and found that despite the fact that hurricanes have routinely ravaged the coastlines of these three states, waterfront homes still carry a premium over other homes. The same pattern held true after Hurricane Sandy destroyed property in New York and New Jersey. Plus, over time, people rebuild even bigger homes on the ocean, raising the median home value in these states. For example, before Hurricane Katrina, the average home price in surviving New Orleans neighborhoods was about $203,000. Six months after the storm, the average home price had jumped to $222,000. That's because the hurricane and floods destroyed almost 40% of the city's homes. There weren't enough properties to actually meet demand driving up prices. Oh, so basic economics. Mm. That's right, supply in, and demand. Where does insurance figure in all this? Well, uh, you know, there's, there's flood insurance, and of course that, that makes people return to the oceans as well, right? You probably most likely underpay for a lot of flood insurance, and there's uh, the security of actually having help once your property does get destroyed. But isn't there also a thing that if, if this has happened to you once, people tend to think, oh, it's not going to happen again. And wow. so there's an assumption that somehow you can get through it and rebuild, and that's a sign of strength and personal responsibility as opposed to just you know, pushing back 100 yards. Oftentimes, sadly enough, it displaces a whole lot of people too. So it's not necessarily the people that rebuild that live there, but other people that come in and the people that live through it once often move away. And then other people come in and build bigger and better homes, which ends up driving up the, the, the value of the property. So is your advice never to buy a waterfront property? No, I think, gosh, I love the views. I would totally buy a waterfront home if I, if I could. Oh, so maybe that's your play here. You're trying to scare the rest of us away so that you can sneak in with That's your right. Zillow. Sven Goodell, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. And that concludes our round of audience contestants tonight. I think we've learned some amazing stuff. I think we should give all our contestants one more hand. Thank you very much. Great job. It's time now for our panelists to pick a winner. They've all been handed their score sheets. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. And the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. He or she will join us back on stage to play the next round with the panelists. So panelists, remember, when ranking these IDKs, there are three criteria to consider. Number one, did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing on some level? It's interpretive. And number three, was it demonstrably true? So who will it be? Svenja Goodell with A Rising Tide Lifts All Home Prices. Michael Nolan with Cutting Absenteeism by Texting the Parents. Lauren Spradlin with Totes Abreves. Igor Tumasov with Artificial Emotional Intelligence or Bernard O'Brien with Advertise Responsibly. While the votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, would you please spread the word? Give it a nice rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to come see the show live, visit tmsidk.com. You will see our upcoming dates in Washington, D.C., Boston, New York City, and Chicago. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at tmsidk underscore show. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants. Sadly, there can be only one winner. Our four runners-up, however, will each receive a certificate of impressive knowledge, which is suitable for framing. 
And let me tell you now then that tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know with her IDK called A Rising Tide Lifts All Home Prices, Svenja Goodell. All right, then, Svenja Goodell, what prize could we possibly give you that is commensurate with the wisdom you uh, invoked tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when we heard from Erin McKean of the online dictionary Wordnik? A lot of people I talk to are surprised to learn that more than half of the unique words of English are not included in traditional dictionaries. But all those illegitimate words are included in the nonprofit Wordnik, where you can adopt a word for $25 a year. So, Svenja, we'd like to present you with a $100 voucher to Wordnik so that you can adopt four of your very favorite words. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And, Svenja, you also get to play, whether you like it or not, the next round of our game along (laughs) with our panelists. We call this our reference round, and it works like this. The four of you will each have just a couple of minutes to come up with a good IDK about tonight's theme, words, and you get a reference book to help you out. Tonight, we're using what else? The Oxford English Dictionary, a paperback copy of the seventh edition. So Joanna, Adriana, Maeve, and Svenja will give each of you a couple minutes to spend with your dictionary and come up with something interesting. It could be a word, a definition, anything that strikes you as something we don't know, something that's worth knowing, and true. Simple as that. Any questions, comments? No, just that this is like a childhood dream of mine, but it never existed until tonight. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> glad we could make all your childhood dreams come true, Maeve. I like it. All right, go. While they're working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with. Our live audience will then choose the two best IDKs out of the four, and those two will go head-to-head in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Welcome back. It's time for Joanna Coles, Adriana Trigiani, Maeve Higgins, and Svenja Goodell, our contestant winner, to tell us something we don't know about words based on their having spent a couple minutes with a dictionary. So let's first hear from tonight's audience winner, Svenja Goodell. Thank you. Uh, I picked the word underwater, which is defined to be situated or occurring beneath the surface of the water. You're obsessed. I I figure I'd I'd stick with a theme here. Um, And of course, we already talked about this meaning of being underwater, literally being underwater. But uh, we, or I've spent a lot of my time doing research on underwater homes where you owe more on your mortgage than what your home is actually worth. And did you know that at its worst in the first quarter of 2012, we had one out of every three homeowners being underwater on their, on their mortgage during the housing bust, and that's down to now 12%. So it's an improvement, but a, a long ways to go. So you just pull a nice little macroeconomic housing stat out of nowhere from the dictionary. <laughs> Excellent. I did. <laughs> Nicely done, Thank you. Svenja Goodell. Uh, Maeve Higgins, what did you come up with out of that book? I'm mortified now because that was such a clever, considered answer. Yeah. And I turned, I opened the book on hussy. Hussy. <laughs> and uh, I, f- I feel like I know what that is. Like, you little hussy. Like, you know, I know what, I believe me, I know what it is. But the interesting thing I thought about it, the origin is from housewife. Oh. Which, like, is the opposite of a hussy. No, it depends. What <laughs> a mood I'm in. I did not personally know that, uh, mm-hmm. that hussy came from the housewife. Mm-hmm. Adriana Trigiani who's been looking very carefully. I love this dictionary, and I thank you for this evening because I have learned so much, but I don't own a dictionary that has this special section in the middle, and I found something that I never saw in my life, which was a collective noun. And I, I, I mean, I knew that they existed, you know, like if it's, a, you, you know some of these things, like a herd of giraffes, herd for giraffes. I did not know that this is what you call a group of nuns. Are you ready? This is a great word. Superfluity. You call it a superfluity of nuns. A superfluity of nuns. How do you spell that? Super. And Super. then F-L-U-I-T-Y. Superfluity of nuns. Nicely done. Joanna Coles, like our other panelists tonight, you, um, you have a way with words. You've been an editor and writer um, at a very high level. And I'm assuming 
that you pulled something out of that dictionary that will um, betray that high level? Well, indeed. Um, What about the word shinty? Mm. Oh, is it like... um, does it, are you saying shanty but with an accent? No, no. Um, shinty is actually a Scottish game resembling hockey, uh, played with curved sticks but taller goalposts. Mm. Interesting. Which sounds like it's just an easier version of hockey, right? Which would fit with the Scots, I think. And I also think that that's what the game of Quidditch was probably based on. Is that right? It's shinty. So, you know, if you sell your entry tonight, shinty, as the precursor of Quidditch, mm-hmm. I think that might up your chances with the audience vote. <laughs> All right, then, um, we should put this to a live audience vote. So remember, your two top choices will go on to the final round, so I'd like you to get out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen right now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. All right, the live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied. I've been handed a score sheet. And in fourth place, with just 15% of the vote, but we love you so much, Maeve Higgins, the hussy. Maeve, this will make you feel a little bit better. In third place, Svenja Goodell, 18% of the vote, after telling us about the decrease in underwater homes, which means that leading the way into our final round, Joanna Coles telling us about Shinty, the potentially fictional precursor of Quidditch with 21% of the vote, and Adriana Trigiani with an astonishing 45% of the vote for a a sissy of nuns. You want me to pray for you. Okay, Joanna and Adriana, here's how the final round will work. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related to tonight's theme, words, and then you'll each have to tell us something we don't know on that topic using... No research materials other than your own very big brains. But on the slight chance that one of you tries to fabricate an answer, remember our fact checker, Bray Lamb, is standing by. All right, the topic for our final round, slang. Simple as that. So maybe you'll tell us about something interesting you've heard or read about. Maybe it's slang that only your family uses. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit TMSIDK.com to keep up with our show, including our live taping schedule and how you can get tickets or be a contestant. If you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, Joanna Coles. Adriana Trigiani, it's time. You will now tell us something we don't know about slang. Do you want to go first, Joanna? Well, the only thing I would say is that if you, if you grow up British, you actually grow up with a lot of Cockney rhyming slang. So in our house, I am known as Strife because trouble and strife, that's the wife. And when we use the phone, the phone is the dog because dog and bone is phone. So... I don't know what, if that, I'm strife and, and, and dog. You're on or the dog. Or it's the dog. Or if there's a phone ringing, you might go, it's the dog. Can someone get the dog? No, but you're <laughs> called strife comes from wife how? Can you reverse So Cockney rhyming slang takes the word and then creates something around it. So wife is, you know, in Cockney men's terms, trouble and strife. Ah. And then you just take the last word. So it's strife. <laughs> Lovely term of endearment, yeah. Adriana Trigiani, you've had uh, a little bit of time Okay, now. so in our home, what we do, um, e- even when I was growing up, our slang is all Italian. So bedroom slippers, we call them puppets. Nobody knows why we call them puppets. Other words that we used was a, a dish towel was a mappine. A mappine. Uh, we cut off the ends of words a lot of times. I, I didn't know what biscotti was till I studied Italian, because in my family, everybody said biscotti. And it applied to people's names, too, because people had nicknames where they cut off the end. So if your name was DeFranco, somebody would say DeFrank. So I never knew there was an O on there. When you're with your family, either back then or now, yeah. is there one word that is some kind of term of endearment that is really almost unique to your family that you know of? That for me, personally, yeah, or, yeah. my grandfather um, had a nickname for me too, which was after a booze. A booze? His, his, yeah, well, he made himself a drink uh, from a booze called Rebel Yell. And he called me Rebel. Before we put this to an audience vote, Beret Lamb, is there anything you can tell us about 
Joanna or Adriana's household slang? It's called rhyming slang. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch of examples on Wikipedia, which I find very credible. Um, <laughs> telephone is replaced by dog. Wow. Eyes by mincers because mince pies. Apples and pears are stairs. Yeah. Yes. And does Wikipedia tell you that Adriana's grandfather called her rebel and joke? I wasn't, well, I wasn't that able my, to fact check. My dead check grandfather yours. and my brothers and sisters and those people. I don't talk to them. I, well. did, I did find the Italian word for dish towel is mapina. Ma- you did find that? Yeah, I did find that. It's, on, it's on a blog called Sons of Italy. Sons of Italy blog. Oh, those clams. Yeah, I, don't know, I know them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for our live audience to pick a winner. I think we'll go with a throat vote. You'll just make as much noise as you can with your mouth, your hands, your feet, whatever, and the winner shall emerge. Remember, the criteria for all our IDKs, is it something you didn't know? Is it something worth knowing? And is it true? So first up, let's hear what you think of Joanna Coles's IDK about her family nickname, The Strife. And next, Adriana Trigiani with really a lovely dissertation on all the things that were talked about in her family from dish towels to rebel yell. Let's hear it for Adriana Trigiani. That's very nice. I think we know that our winner of the evening, Joanna Coles, very well done. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Joanna. That is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about words. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, don't use words too big for the subject. Don't say infinitely when you mean very. Otherwise, you'll have no word left when you want to talk about something really infinite. Thank you so much to our panelists, Joanna Coles, Adriana Trigiani, and Maeve Higgins. Thanks to all our contestants, and thanks especially to all of you for coming to play Tell Me Something. And coming up next week, you do it, I do it. Everybody does it. Our theme is collections. On the panel, the author and self-experimenter Tim Ferriss, Brooklyn Museum director Ann Pasternak, and the comedian Eugene Merman. Let me just say, I didn't want to make a big deal, but I was testing some weapons behind the moon. It's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.